0: Why should I gain from his reward? Um, I can't give an answer, but I know I'm thankful. Are you? So thankful for the many, many kindnesses and good gifts that the Lord has given us through Jesus Christ who won the victory. So, uh, you know, I'm thankful this morning that the reward of Christ's work on our behalf results in the forgiveness of my sins, results in heaven being secure for me, it results in me having hope in this lifetime, and and honestly, one of the the gifts that it gives me through Jesus is the gift of this church family, and I'm so grateful to be able to be worshiping with you guys today and uh, opening God's word with you today. You guys ready to open God's word? All right, all right, there we go. Now, you're going to have to wait a minute because i got two things to say before we do that. All right, the first thing I want to say is just to reiterate what was said earlier, and that is welcome to all of you guys who are new. Uh, If you're new with us today, it's a blessing to have you um, as Bryson and Bill mentioned earlier, we are a church that exists to help people know Christ and then to make him known in the world. And uh, we know that's why we're here as a church. That's why we're here as Christians. Um, and uh, we hope that you see that. So we're glad that you're here with us today. Um, I also want to say this. This is a, kind of the second... Um, announcement this morning. Um, One of the things that we like to do is make the church aware when we are beginning to hire, uh, look for a search for our our next pastor or director in our ministry. And so we're getting ready to begin our next search for uh, a position that's entitled a pastor or director of leadership and education. Now some of you who were here all the way back in the fall of um, 2021 and we launched the Make Him Known initiative, you know that we Laid out to the church several staff positions that we wanted to, uh, by God's grace, be able to hire moving forward. We have filled almost all those positions. Thanks to uh, God's goodness to us through your consistent and faithful giving and generosity. We thank you for that. And so now we are in a spot where we are ready to make um, this last hire as part of the Make Him Known initiative. Um, This person will be responsible for three main things. That is that they will help provide some supervision and management of the church staff. Uh, this person will also help build leadership development systems for uh, all the ministries in our church. We, need, we know we need to be raising up people to use their gifts and faithfully serve and to lead teams of ministry servants uh, throughout our ministry. So this person will help lead and guide and direct those leadership development systems. And then uh, this person will also oversee our classes ministry and the curriculum, the content, the teachers uh, that are in place for that. And so I'm um, excited to bring this person on. It's going to be a huge um, uh, responsibility and a very important role for us. You can read more about the role uh, on our website at ubcbeavercreek.com employment. And you can see the position there. Here's what I'm asking of you as people who are regular attenders and participants in the life of UBC I'm asking you to please kind of take the time to read about this position, pray for the Lord to bring uh, his person to us, and then also help spread the word. If you know people that you believe will fit the uh, the description and the role there, um, encourage them to follow the steps that are outlined on our church webpage um, for applications. So we would love to see um, you spread the word, and I'm looking forward to see who God brings as our next staff teammate. So those things being covered, We are going to get in God's word. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Today we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. Um, As as we've said all along, this book is called Acts because it really delivers to us, it reports to us, the actions of the Holy Spirit through the lives of the apostles. It details for us the, the uprising, the formation of the early church. It tells us how the gospel spread from Jerusalem, then out to the regions of Judea and Samaria, and then, of course, out to the ends of the earth. Chapters 1 through 8 are all about the apostles' witness right there in Jerusalem. Chapters 9 through 12 are about their witness out in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 13 through the end tell us about the gospel spreading out towards uh, the ends of the earth, the the non-Jewish regions of the world. Um, The gospel really went out to the ends of the earth, as we've learned, through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so as we look at the scripture today, we are going to be picking up our study while Paul is on his way. um, He's already set his course as part of his third missionary journey. Um, And so where we pick up today is with him in the city of Ephesus so he's there in Ephesus. Again, Ephesus is in what we would call modern-day Turkey. Um, he's been ministering there for about two years or so. A very important event has just taken place. If you remember last week, we looked at chapter 19, verses 10 through 20. And when we were studying that passage, we saw that you know, this, uh, this group of itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to come and cast demons out of a man and to do it in the name of Jesus, even though these Jewish ministers, they didn't know Jesus. They weren't followers of Jesus. So they were misusing the name of Christ for their own purposes. And that totally backfired on them. And uh, this demon uprose against those men and uh, basically overcame them. And they <laughs> ran out of the house. Um, and I won't share all the details because I know we have little kids in the room here today. So, you know, we uh, what we saw was that the name of Jesus became... Um, reverently feared, held in honor, something serious was going on in the name of Jesus. And we left off last week understanding that the gospel began to prevail in the city of Ephesus. So that's where we're going to pick up today, Paul's third missionary journey in Ephesus, gospel is prevailing. All right. So here's how we're going to work through today's message. Today I want to look at verses 21 through 41. Uh, I want to teach through it verse by verse. So, that you have a good understanding of the text. And then once you properly understand the text, then you can properly apply the text, right? So, we're gonna just end today with two applicational takeaways for us. And it's all gonna tie into the main idea of this text. And the main idea that we see from this text is this sometimes the effectiveness of the gospel will result in a disturbance in the culture, right? Sometimes the effectiveness of the gospel will result in a disturbance. In the culture, now let's see that as we look into Acts chapter 19, we'll start in verse 21. And let me just give you a heads up: for the next 10 minutes or so, this is this is going to feel less like a sermon and more like maybe like a Bible study or a history lesson through the scriptures. Right? So hang with me. But what I want to show you is that the Bible, as we're going to see it come together, is not just a whole collection of uh, morality stories that are on par with Veggie Tales or anything else that's just kind of fictional right? It is, what I want you to see is that the the Bible is history, and that as you start to read the Bible well and and thoughtfully, you can see how the historical pieces tie in together, okay? So let's start in verse 21. Verse 21 says, now after these events, right, these events being those sons of Sceva being overcome by uh, the demon, if you remember, there was this big public book-burning ceremony that the Christians who had come to follow the Lord Jesus, they brought their their items that were being used for witchcraft and such, and they burned them in the public square, right? And the gospel started prevailing in the city. It says, now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Well, okay, well, here's Paul in Ephesus. He says, I gotta go to Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, and then eventually get to Rome. But what I want you to see is that Paul has this travel plan mapped out because that's where he senses the Holy Spirit leading him to go. It says Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through these places. Now, just to kind of get a, a bearing on where all these places are, let's look at them on the map. Paul is in Ephesus right now. You can kind of see Ephesus right there at the south eastern kind of corner of the Aegean Sea. That's where Paul is in Ephesus. He decides he's going to go north and then west over to the region of Macedonia which is where you can see Philippi and Thessalonica. From there he's going to head south uh, down to the region of Achaia which is the location of Corinth. And then he says, after he goes to those places, he's going to essentially retrace his steps and go back all the way to Jerusalem which is in the south I guess eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. So This picture that you're looking at on the screen now, Paul hasn't yet taken this route, but as we read through the rest of Acts, you're gonna see that this is the route he takes in order to get back to Jerusalem. And he says that his desire is, after he visits Jerusalem, then he wants to do what? He wants to, at some point, get to Rome. Now, he mentions his desire to get to Rome right here in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. And again, he's in Ephesus at this point. And later in his third journey... While he's in Corinth, he's going to write his letter to the Roman church. And in his letter to the Roman church, he's going to write to them and reiterate also his desire to come see them. So this is what you would read in Romans chapter 1, verses 13-15. through 15. Paul writes to them and he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you, to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is eager to get to Rome. He says it while he's uh, here ministering in Ephesus on his second, third missionary journey. He says it when he writes his letter to the Roman church. Here's the thing. Why would Paul want to get to Rome? What's so big about Rome at that time? Here's the thing. Rome was the central hub of the Roman Empire, most important city in the world. Paul knows that if he goes there and the gospel can take root there and start to flourish there, then it's probably gonna start getting distributed to the rest of the world, right? It's like the central hub, the key city in the world at that point. So here's what we have to remember, though, as we study the Bible. The gospel had actually already got to Rome, okay? Now, he, he writes his letter to the Roman church, right? This is the church in Rome saying, hey, I haven't come to see you yet. I haven't been there. I want to get there. So how did the gospel get there? How did the gospel get to to Rome? How How did a church start there that Paul would write to? And the answer that we've learned through our study in the book of Acts is this. It's through the events of Pentecost. Remember in Acts chapter two, the events of Pentecost, people, Jews from all sorts of regions traveled into the city of Jerusalem Probably some people from Rome came in to Jerusalem, and they hear the gospel, they believe, they see the signs and wonders on the hands of the apostles, and they believe. And then they leave there, and now they're saved, and they take the gospel back to their, their cities, wherever they live. And apparently, some people eventually had made their way, believers had made their way into the city of Rome, and a church started there. And so Paul wanted to go and, and see them, and, and strengthen their faith. And help the gospel flourish even more there, right? And as we study the book of Acts, we're going to see that Paul does eventually make his way back to Rome, although it certainly didn't go according to the plan he thought was going to happen. So we'll get to that as we go. Um, But even before Paul gets to Rome, where he wants to go eventually, he says he's got to revisit Macedonia and Achaia and Jerusalem. And so that's where he senses the Holy Spirit leading him next. So, another question that we just think of when we're studying the Bible is okay, well, why? Like, why did Paul feel like he needed to go back to Macedonia and Achaia and the churches in those regions? And why did he have to go back to Jerusalem? Like, what was going on with that? What was that about? Well, again, we're studying history here. And as you study history, you come to understand that in the city of Jerusalem during that time, the Christians were persecuted there, they were impoverished. They had experienced famines and various things that were making life very difficult for them, right? And so Paul cares about them. Remember when Paul was a um, before Paul was a Christian, he persecuted Christians himself in and around Jerusalem, and so he knows the type of hostility that's going on against the church that existed in Jerusalem. Right? And he knows the, the, the difficulty of life for them. Well, now he's become a Christian. He cares about the people of, of Jerusalem, his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what you see as you study the Bible is that he, he says, hey, this kind of mother church in Jerusalem is really hurting. Now all these new baby churches have been started. Let's go back and have these, these uh, newly formed churches give of their resources, give of their, their treasures, take up an offering, and we'll provide some resources and we'll take it back to Jerusalem. And so that's what Paul's doing here. Um, Again, as you kind of piece the the letters of the Bible together, you can start to see this picture come to shape. So we just read from Romans chapter 1 a minute ago. Here's Romans chapter 15, the end of Paul's letter. Paul says at the end of Romans, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. So Paul's passion is to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants to see people believe who haven't yet believed. He wants to see people hear who haven't yet heard the gospel. And so he says in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from uh, from coming to you. Paul's saying the, the reason is because people who haven't yet seen and heard, I want to help them see and hear, and and I'm traveling around other places doing that, and that's what's taken me so long to get to you, church in Rome. He says this in verse 23, though, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, right? So Paul didn't just want to get to Rome. He actually wanted to continue on to the extent of the Roman Empire and preach the gospel there, even in In the area of Spain. He says, I hope to see you again as I go uh, to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present however, right? so think about this he's writing this letter to the Romans at present however I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem for they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in their material blessings. Paul is saying, hey, the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem. It, the gospel was for the Jews first, but also to the Greeks. So these non-Jewish people, these, these churches that contain non-Jewish people that had sprung up in all the regions around, he says, you kind of owe your existence uh, to the way God worked from the, in the Jerusalem church first you're sharing now in, their, material ble- or in their, their spiritual blessings, so aren't they also worthy of your material blessings? And so he's going to collect an offering to bring it back to the hurting church in Jerusalem. And again, in Romans 15, verse 28, Paul says, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So you kind of get a picture of what's going on in Paul's mind when he writes his letter to the Roman church. And I just want to reiterate, I'm sharing this with you, and it's important to me to share it with you, especially today with your children in the room, moms and dads, because we need to teach our children that the Bible is history. It's not just weird pieces of writings that kind of get, you know... um, misconstrued and pieced together. There's actual events going on in history in the life of Paul and the churches that were springing up. And the book of Acts kind of gives us this big narrative, but it also ties in to the other letters of the epistles in your Bible. So parents, we need to teach that to our children, and I want you to start to read the New Testament, tying it back to the events of the book of Acts. And so what we need to see, though, from our time here in, in the book of Acts is that Paul wanted to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Isn't that what Jesus told his apostles? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul wanted to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, like Jesus said in Acts 1.8. And he wanted to see it to, to go to places even like Rome and even to Spain. And so that's what Paul says in Acts 19, verse 21. Again, in, in 19 verse, uh, Acts 19.21, Paul says he was resolved in the Spirit to do this. What he means is he's being compelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is constraining him to do this. He's not just kind of doing ministry like he wants to do. You know, He's saying the Holy Spirit is calling me to go here and preach to these people. He knew that God was calling him to do it, and he felt willing to do it, even if it meant going back to Jerusalem. Right, What happened in Jerusalem? The persecution of the saints. The place where Paul used to live out his old life persecuting Christians. He's willing to follow the Holy Spirit's lead even back into that city. He's even willing to go to Rome. The empire whose military essentially oversaw the killing of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Paul is resolved to go wherever the Spirit leads him. Now we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. So Let's look at verse 22, see what happens after Paul decides to follow the Holy Spirit's lead. It says, And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, Paul himself stayed in Asia for a while. So again, Paul's got this plan to collect money to give back to Jerusalem. Before he goes to Macedonia and to um, Achaia, he sends Timothy and Erastus, two of his workers, to go on ahead of him prepare the way, tell the churches this is coven, give them time to start setting aside funds, collecting uh, their resources, so that when Paul makes his way back to them, then um, they can be part of the collection. So he sends these guys ahead. Pick up in verse 23. It says, And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now the way is a title or an expression that was used in the first century to describe the followers of Jesus Christ. They were, it, was a discre- it was a way to identify the church, right? This is the way that the church was known. Just like people might call Christians today, you know, evangelicals or mainline or Protestant. Or, you know, we kind of have our expressions today. We, we are known by certain names today, by our denominational affiliation. We're, you know, we're known by all these things. But that's not the way people were known in the first century. They weren't known as Baptists right? They were known as the way, which identified them with the teaching of Jesus, where Jesus, what did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That was the teaching of Jesus. So the people of Christ were identified with this exclusive way to know the one true God. Through Jesus, you could know the one true God. Now, that would have totally set them apart from the beliefs of the Greek culture of their day, who were obsessed with mythological gods and plurality of gods and multiple ways to know and experience them, right? So, I like, I love that the Christians in the first century were called the way. Don't you like that? I think it's great. Identifying with Christ, the way to God. Now, I know some of you might be like, yeah, let's call ourselves the way again. I just want to let you know, the way is a cult now. And we probably don't want to start identifying ourselves that way today. Not without a lot of disclaimers, right? So so there arose this disturbance concerning the way. So let's read more about this disturbance. It says in verse 24, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, so if you've traveled or whatever, you've gone to kind of um, big cities or or kind of um, highlighted places in our world, you know that all around those areas, tourists, tourist attractions, they set up little shops and uh, little trinket booths and things like that where people make a lot of money selling memorabilia and and that kind of thing. Um, Well, that's what these craftsmen made. They were making idols to... The goddess Artemis, and if you remember, Artemis was also known as Diana. We talked about this last week. She was understood to be the goddess of fertility, um, the goddess who uh, really um, empowered women in nature. And there was a massive temple for her that was built right there in the city of Ephesus, where Paul was, where this man Demetrius was. Um, that temple became that temple to Artemis became known as one of the seven wonders of the world. Huge people from all over the world would travel to see this. And of course, the Ephesian citizens would make money by selling their little trinkets and doing their, their, uh, selling their, their little idols and things that they would make there of the goddess Artemis. And obviously, one of the things that were most popular to make were these little shrines that the craftsmen would shape and put together. So Demetrius, he's a silversmith and he brings together these idol craft makers together. Keep reading in verse 25. These he gathered with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's maids with hands are not God's. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and all the world worship. So here we got a little trouble brewing, a problem arising. This man, Demetrius, gathered his business buddies, and you're going to read in just a minute that they essentially incite a riot in the city. But you know, trouble starts with a person. A leading voice that's going to stir up the trouble. and this is who Demetrius is, and he, he basically gets his buddies together and he says, "Guys, Paul's making us lose money. He's getting, he's getting people to stop worshiping Artemis and start worshiping Christ." And in other words, what was really, what was really going on, and what was really Artemis, or what was really uh, uh, Demetrius' concern? His concern was that their financial profit was being threatened. It was being threatened by the advance of the gospel. Because see, what have we learned throughout our study of the book of Acts? The apostle Paul, he came and he, he preached that the one true God was a living God. And that he doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands like the big temple here made to Artemis. He says instead he lives in the hearts of those who believe in his son Jesus who was crucified for the forgiveness of sins and then rose again on the third day. And and Paul is going around preaching that if you repent of your sin and believe in him, then the Holy Spirit of the one true God will come and live within you and give you true life knowing God. And of course, many people then were turning from their little handmade idols and starting to experience the one true God in their life. And uh, man, the gospel was prevailing in Ephesus and all of Asia Minor. You know, what did we just study last week? Like the people had gathered together and they had a public book burning and all the things that they burned were worth like a huge amount of money, 50,000 pieces of silver. So if the Christians stopped buying all these items that were intended for idol worship, that's a lot of profit that was going to be lost by these craftsmen and, and uh, little shop owners and, and silversmiths. And it's not just for the Christians who already believed, but what if they kept telling the message and helping other people believe in Christ? Like It's just going to continue to have you know, uh, residual effects on the rest of these guys who were making their living off of Artemis worship. So the problem is that Demetrius gathers his fellow craftsmen, he tells them how Paul was calling them to follow Jesus, and that resulted in them losing business and losing money because people were turning away from Artemis. So it started with a man... The man gathered a group, and the group formulated a message. And now he had to get his group saying something. So what did they decide they were going to start saying? Look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Now, I want you to really understand what's going on here. Again, they're going to, eventually you're going to see a, a riot ensue. Started with financial concern, got tied into a slogan here, great is Artemis. What's really going on, though, is that these men, their chief concern is money. But they mask it in the language of religion. Their mouth is saying, great is Artemis, but their hearts are believing, hey, great is my money. Don't mess with it. So, why do they choose this language, great is Artemis? Because here's what they know. They know that that message will appeal to the masses. No one would listen to them if they walked around saying, great is the money we make off Artemis. Great will our profit be if you keep buying our stuff. They know they're not going to make any indent with that. So they just kind of incite people to run around saying, great is Artemis. They know people are attached to Artemis. They can draw a crowd. They can make an issue out of this. Because the Apostle Paul and the message of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ will threaten the worship of the quote-unquote little G-God that they love. So they have to deceive people behind the mask of religion. Guys, this is what Satan does. He is the father of lies. He has been a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. He works in ways to stir up a person who can stir up a lie, who can stir up a slogan that can stir up a crowd, even with a a message that appeals to the masses. But really kind of veils the true idol of their heart, the God of money. Jesus made it clear, you're going to love one or the other. No man can serve two masters. You will love God or you will love money. The love of money, roots of all kinds of evils, the scripture says. So they veil their true heart idol with this religious slogan. And a mob gets stirred up. Look at verse 29. It says, so the city was filled with the confusion. What does our scripture say about confusion? The scripture says God is not the author of confusion. Satan wants to get people confused. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So they they rushed together into this theater. Now, if you look at you know, the city of Ephesus historically, you can see like this theater wasn't like a little kind of side room somewhere. This was a massive theater on the, on the edge of the city. You know how many people could be held in this city or in this theater? 25,000 people in this theater, right? And so they're starting to rush into this theater. They're dragging people with them. Remember, who's the one actually being accused of wrongdoing or who's the who's the individual that Demetrius and friends are concerned with it's Paul but they can't really find Paul apparently so they just grab a couple of his buddies and they essentially take him hostage and bring him into this theater and the crowds start to gather there you know I believe these I believe this mob like they, they're intending to do harm to these these guys they would have certainly done harm to Paul if he had been there but this is the dangerous situation at the moment. The mob was stirred up. Imagine Paul seeing this. Imagine him hearing about it. Two of his partners got kind of taken hostage or in the middle of this dangerous situation. You wonder how he's going to react. You know, what's he going to do? Verse 30 kind of gives us a little look into what was going on inside of him. Verse 30 says, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, right, he wanted to, he wanted to go. He didn't want to run away from the mob. He wanted to run toward it. He said, it says the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, Asiarchs, by the way, are elected officials who are from the most noble and wealthy families in Asia Minor. It says they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. You ever had Christian friends that help protect you from something foolish, even though you had good intentions? Man, I'm grateful, you know. You know Paul, right? His, His heart is to run and be part of like bringing some not run away from the problem, run into the problem, but bring some sort of resolution, probably proclaiming the gospel, helping his friends. What did Jesus say? Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Like, this is the heart of the Apostle Paul. He's willing to run in there and die with them if he has to. But the believers in, in the area come around him and, and restrain him from going because they realize how dangerous of a situation this was becoming. We look at more about what's going on as we continue ahead. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, now, now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Like, again, I just, one of the things I love about the Bible is just how honest it is, right? People just see a crowd gathering, oh, this is the popular thing to do today. Right? But nobody must have had anything else to do. We'll just follow the crowd. They don't know what's going on, but they don't want to miss it, whatever it is. So they just join in the activity. They join in the mob. They join in the riot. They join in this big disturbance. Boy, oh boy, have we seen some riots and disturbances over the past few years, haven't we? You know what what riots almost always have in common? Here's what riots have in common. Confusion. Riots have confusion. When Satan can get a crowd confused... Boy, when there's no truth and clarity of truth, man, the enemy can really just work his way into a situation. You start to see some of the riots, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, the disturbances, the upheavals. I don't really care which side you're on on that for my purposes today. Here's what I want you to see. In our culture, people get confused, right? They, they, they hear a slogan. Boy, they'll just charge, jump right in and get on the bandwagon evidence pushed aside, rational thinking pushed aside, just emotional, you know, uh, volatile venting just comes out. They get confused. You ask them about why they're doing what they're doing. They don't really know. Their answers are illogical, irrational, based on emotion, all this stuff. Guys, we act sometimes like this is a new, it kind of is a new thing, at least in my lifetime. I know there's been, you know, riots in American history prior to this, but you know, there's nothing new under the sun. My point is for you guys to see like this type of stuff was still going on All the way back in Paul's day. And that's what's going on, man. The people are assembled in confusion. They're not even knowing why they're there. Yeah, they they believe the slogan, Artemis is great. Artemis is great. Okay. You can draw a crowd. They just came along with their friends. You know, they probably had no idea what was really going on with Paul's buddies. You know, they probably didn't even know two guys were being... Held captive. They're just following the crowd. Don't know why we're here. Tough for these two guys, you know, whatever. Satan gets people confused. Stuff like this happens. Verse 33. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know how weird it would be if I just repeated that for like one minute straight? Two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Great. Okay, guess we're all on the, the chant bandwagon here. We're not exactly sure who Alexander was, but whoever Alexander was, the people of Ephesus didn't really want to listen to him. And why didn't they want to listen to him? Because he was a Jew. Like, it's not because necessarily he was on Paul's side. It's not because he was a follower of Christ. It's because I believe it's be- simply because he was a Jew. People didn't want to hear him because, man, there were great differences between the Jews and the Greeks. Alexander, as a Jew, worshipped Yahweh, one, the one you know, one God in the mind of the Jewish, in the mind of the Jews. All the, the crowds worshipped Artemis, one of many Greek gods. Uh, Alexander would have embraced the second commandment: don't make any graven images. The people who worshiped Artemis, you know, what did, they had shrines and images anywhere. They didn't want to hear from a Jew, so what did they do? He doesn't fit our agenda. We're just going to shout, shout him down. We're just going to cancel him. Cancel culture. 2,000 years ago, cancel culture is still going on. You know, it was being done against Paul, it's being done against this Jewish man, Alexander. Two hours of shouting. Finally, things start to get a little bit under control. Look at verse 35. 35, Verse 35 says, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Like, I love this guy because he's... For whatever reason, you know, God raises him up, gives him a voice that's going to be listened to, a, a position of authority that's going to be listened to. God raises him up and he basically tells people, hey guys, your chant, we all know that. Great is Artemis. Everybody here believes it, so, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you know, don't do anything rash. So what he means by rash is, you know, you're, you're inciting this crowd and you're going to cause trouble here. Keep, keep reading in verse 37. Here's what this town clerk says. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen uh, that are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. So he calls out Demetrius by name and his buddies and he's like, look guys, like, don't start a riot, like, take it to court. We have a, we have a system for this. Let them bring charges against one another, he says in verse 38. Verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said this, um, he dismissed the assembly. Now, what we have here is God raising up a secular man with a sane mind who has influence and can really accomplish two things. He gives God uses this man to give common grace, the protection of both the believer and unbeliever in the, in, in, that were in the theater, so that people didn't just totally make a disaster and harm one another. So, God, in His common grace, raises this man up. God, in His sovereign providence, also uh, raises up this secular man for the protection of Paul and his missionary friends, so that the gospel can continue to go forward. What is, the pick, what is the whole point of the book of Acts? The whole point of the book of Acts is to tell us how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If Paul had been killed here, you know, if his missionary friends had been shut down, we wouldn't have the, the story of the rest of the gospel going forward. We wouldn't have uh, the letters that were written to us that are now in our New Testament. God is sovereignly working out his purposes. And he raises up this guy to say, like, look, the Roman Empire, they, they don't like things getting out of control like this. They like order, We don't want Rome to send in troops and arrest people and punish us because Paul and his guys, they're not really causing the trouble here. It's Demetrius and you guys. So you need to settle this in court because if you don't, it's not so much Paul and friends that are going to get in trouble, but it's everybody else who's causing the riot. Then he dismisses everybody from the courtyard, and God works to sovereignly accomplish his purposes. And what's the point from this 20-verse section in the book of Acts? It's this. Sometimes the effectiveness of the gospel will result in a disturbance in the culture. Sometimes the effectiveness of the gospel will result in the disturbance of the culture. Now, with that big idea in mind, there's a lot I could share, and I'm pushing my time, so I just want to share two takeaways with you today. Two. First one is this. If you know that God is calling you somewhere for the sake of the gospel, then go, even if it's hard. If God is calling you somewhere for the sake of the gospel, then go, even if it's hard. In our text, God was calling Paul to go to Jerusalem and Rome. Those places were not friendly places to Christians. Yet that's where God was leading them. Therefore, Paul was going. So maybe you're in the room today and you sense the Lord leading you someplace new to take a new step for the sake of the gospel. Maybe he's calling you to leave your career and go into ministry in some way. Maybe he's calling you to... Head out internationally as a full-time missionary. Maybe he's going to call you for the first time in your life to take a short-term mission trip. Maybe he's going to be nudging you to be part of some new ministry effort that's starting. Lord willing, when we send a group out to plant or re-hit plant or revitalize a church work you know, uh, in the future, maybe the Lord's going to nudge you out of what you're used to here at UBC to go be part of that work. Listen, God may be calling you to something totally different. I don't know what he's calling you to do, but if God is calling you, Go. Even if it's hard. Because, hey, God might want to work through you the same way he did with Paul and his missionary friends to see the gospel go where he wants it to go and see it prevail in the cities he wants it to prevail. If God is leading you, go. Even if it seems hard. Second takeaway. Expect disturbances as you go with the gospel because it confronts culture's idols. Church family. This is what we see, right? The people in Ephesus were full of hostility towards Paul and the Christian witnesses. They formed a mob. They raised a commotion. Why? Because the ministry of Paul and the truth of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel confronted the idols of their hearts. Whether it was the inner heart worship of money or whether it was the outward expressions of the worship of Artemis. Their idols were confronted. Guys, our belief in the gospel, our lifestyle being different, our lifestyle of living according to God's ways, it is going to confront the idols of the unbelieving world. So we have to get rid of this idea that if we just live nice enough and kindly enough, and you know, then all, suddenly the world will all just love us. Nobody could be more like Jesus than Jesus, and the mob still crucified him. So we have to settle it in our hearts that as we live for Christ, sometimes the work of the wicked one will be to stir up other people against us, and that's just the way it is. And it's not necessarily that I want to have this heart of like troublemaking or causing, you know, disturbances on purpose and making, you know, the, the Scripture teaches us to the best we can do to live a quiet life, right? Right and to not try to stir up lawlessness and things like that. But still, it's going to happen. Why? Because our values are going to confront the idols that are in the hearts of today's culture. This is going to happen for us. If the gospel compels you to sexual purity, it is going to confront those who cherish sexual impurity. When the gospel compels you to workplace integrity, it's going to confront those who don't practice integrity. When the gospel compels you to pure speech, then it's going to confront those who practice impure speech. When the gospel compels you to fidelity in your marriage, it's going to bother the people who practice infidelity to their marriage. When the gospel compels you to repent of sin, it's going to bother people when, they're called to, uh, when, they, they, when they want to keep cherishing their sin. The gospel that compels you to love Jesus is going to bother the people that don't love Jesus The gospel that compels you to trust God's word in scripture is going to confront those who oppose it. The truth of Christ confronts people's idols. And really, you know what this should do? This should really break our hearts. The heart of Jesus is to look at the crowds who were deceived and say, "They're they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost and wandering. You know, the more that... I read the scripture, the more I preach straight through books of the Bible, just kind of read straight through the Bible on my own, the more that I start to see this um, occurrence of people who are against the way of the Lord, who essentially form groups or communities or uh, mobs of uprising against the Lord's work. You know, the enemy just loves to do that. He loves to make disturbances like this to come against the order that God wants to bring into the world through his institution and his ways and his laws and through his love. The enemy wants to come against that. You know, what do we see here? Here we have the mob stirred up in Ephesus. But let's not remember, 2,000 years ago, there was another mob stirred up in Jerusalem. Here they were stirred up by the cry of, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! In Jerusalem, they were stirred up by the cry of crucify him, crucify him. Here, the riot came against the Apostle Paul. In Jerusalem, the riot came against our Lord Jesus Christ. And the heart of Jesus is to go to the cross amidst the mob, and his cry from the cross was, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. They're confused. Confusion, a misunderstanding of truth, whatever it may be, has led them to take these actions that they don't even understand. And the heart of Jesus was to die for those, some of those very people who crucified him. So Jesus let himself be killed. But God raised him up three days later. You you know know what your hope is going to be in the midst of public aggression? Like if real serious public aggression ever comes our way, you know what it's going to be as cancel culture continues to rise up against Christians? You know what's going to happen the more that uh, hostile disturbances arise against us? You know how we're going to continue to have hope and press on? Here's what gives you hope. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because look, even if the hostile mob kills you for your beliefs, you will share in a resurrection like his. That's why Paul could continue on amidst the hostility of the crowds. Because he believed in the resurrection. I mean, there's so much I could share here, but... I just, one passage I want you to understand. When he would later write to the Corinthian church, he talks about these things that he had experienced in Asia Minor in Ephesus. And here's what he says when he writes to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses eight through 10. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's talking about the stuff we just read. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who does what? Raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In your heart, is there a hope in the resurrection? Like, This is what kept Paul going. If they kill me, I still live. If I die, Christ is going to raise me up. Listen, that was Paul's hope. Your hope needs to be there too. Your hope needs to be in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. When it comes to the mobs and the confusion, Jesus Christ is the one who will bring the light into the darkness. Jesus Christ is the one who will bring the clarity amid the uni- among the confusion. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to bring the life into the death culture of our world. Jesus is still the only hope of the world. And Jesus is still the only hope for the Christian who lives in this world. Guys, we are people of the way. And it's an exclusive way. Right? It's a narrow road. It's a cross-bearing road. Yet the way of Jesus is the way that leads to life. And at the same time, our way of Jesus, our road, it our gospel will still be met by strong opposition from the culture at times. Because some people are gonna be threatened by the effects of the gospel on your life and the potential effects of the gospel on their life. So they will respond and they'll be vocal and they'll take action and they'll make a disturbance and church family when they do give praise to your sovereign god because that means the gospel is going forward and christ is being honored sometimes the effectiveness of the gospel will result in a disturbance in the culture and by god's grace the gospel will prevail in our city just as it did in ephesus in the day of paul let's pray now lord uh, yes, we live, uh, obviously, in a, a world of, um, that you, you're fully aware of, of the verbal assault uh, against Christian values, increase in legal action against Christian values, hostility from crowds and family members. And yet, Lord, uh, we haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, at least not most of us. But Lord, I pray that in the day that hostility inevitably comes our way, Lord, I pray that you would make those who are your own in this church, and really, Lord, I pray the same thing for your church around the world. Let us be a people who have set our hope in Christ, whom you have raised from the dead, knowing that even if the enemy who loves to steal and kill and destroy, even if he kills us, that we will rise again with Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would let that be the great hope of our hearts. And I pray that you would give us, in the midst of a, a difficult time in our culture, give us the love of Christ in our hearts who can hang on the cross and still wish forgiveness for the very people who didn't know what they were doing. Keep us from sinful brazenness. Keep us from our own heart idols. And let us properly balance truth with love as we pursue the life and the way of Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen.